You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. Ready to get my Thanksgiving eat on. How about you? It is the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, I guess we are all, in theory, ready to get our, our eat on in, in perhaps unusual circumstances, or perhaps uh, somewhat stripped down affair, though I don't know if that applies to the food or just the size of the gathering, but... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm ready to to nosh some Thanksgiving goodness. My children have been quarantined home from school for the last two weeks. Yeah, because how's that going? Is that almost over? Yeah, it ends this week, just in time for Thanksgiving. And anybody we were going to have Thanksgiving with is pretty much already in our bubble, so it's not like we're traveling and seeing a bunch of family members or anything. But let me tell you something: when you're uh, quarantined with two children who aren't allowed to go to school, aren't allowed to go to their grandparents' house, and it's cold outside, and all the stuff you would normally do with children when it's cold outside as a way to get them out of the house is now like the absolute worst thing you could possibly think about doing because of all the COVID-19 stuff. You you got to get creative with your in-home entertainment options, you know? I imagine you do. It's not easy. I mean- Basically, it's just, it did not take long before we were like, okay, let's see how many different games we could play where I pull you across the floor on a blanket, something like that. Let's see, yeah. see if we can, we could squeeze 30 minutes of good times out of that. It's been tough, but, man. Uh, everything's on the up and up. No one got ill. No one has gotten ill. As far as we know, no symptoms. Everybody seems fine. Okay. Well, that's Except for my sanity. Sanity's yeah. not doing so great. Sanity, not hot, but uh, physical health. I'll take the physical health uh, for the time being. So, uh, Ben, over the weekend, you know, I guess the long weekend, if you want to take it all the way back to Bellator on Thursday, there was a smattering of MMA events. Obviously, the Bellator event I just mentioned, UFC 255 on Saturday. There was an Invicta show as well. Uh, Don't you dare forget to mention Fight Circus. Oh, right. Yeah, Don't you dare. Uh, did I tell you this week that I am now receiving the Fight Circus PR media releases? Okay, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad those. to be up up to date on everything that's going on with, with Fight Circus. Uh, so like I said, you know, not, not, not a slow weekend, I think, by any stretch of the imagination in mixed martial arts. And yet the events that we did have didn't necessarily seem noteworthy enough for us to, to force them into the three-round format that we like to do here on the CME. So long-time listeners of the show can probably anticipate what I'm about to say. All questions considered this week, folks. We're going to do listener mail for the full hour of the show. As many of these questions as we can get through, as usual. We got a lot of good ones. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of bases, I think, is the the marching orders for this episode of the CME. Yeah, it's a good week for all questions considered because while there was a lot of stuff happening, you can't say ain't shit going on. There's no like one or two huge shit going on items. 
Instead, yeah. there's a lot of different stuff sprawling all into sprawling its tentacles into all areas of the MMA universe. So we might as well. And we got a bunch of good questions, uh, including uh, at least one from Susan B. Anthony. I saw, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, as we always do, a smattering of good questions from the co-main event world. First question this week, folks. We're going to get right into it. Comes from Darkwing Duck. Okay, naturally, yeah. So I the superhero from the Ducktales world. Mm-hmm. If I if my memory from middle school serves me, you are correct. Darkwing Duck writes, I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but how many more 125-pound title defenses before Davis and Figueredo can go champ champ? Can you imagine him at 135 against Peter Yawn or Aljamain Sterling, TJ Dillashaw, Corey Sandhagen, Cheeto Vera, or Jose Aldo? So uh, Davis and Figueredo, a.k.a. Davey Figs, a.k.a. Figgy Smalls, Went out there in the main event of UFC 255 on Saturday. Ben got a quick and easy one minute and 57 second guillotine choke over Alex Perez, where he did, in fact, look pretty overwhelming. Uh, probably jumping the gun to to cry out for a guy to, to go to 135 and try to be the champ champ after his uh, first successful defense of the 125 pound title. But as you know, Things concerning the flyweight division are always somewhat in flux. And uh, like it or not, Davis and Figueredo might wind up at bantamweight uh, at some point, depending on how long we we keep this division alive and and kicking. But uh, let's talk first just about the fight. What did you think of uh, uh, Figgy Smalls and his performance here against Alex Perez? Yeah, I mean... It's a great performance. You can't really say anything too bad about a guy who goes out there in his first title defense, finishes somebody in under two minutes. I also, one of the things that I appreciate about the way Davis and Figueredo fights, you saw it in both those Joseph Benavidez fights, and then you still see it now, at least in this first title defense, is that's a guy who's out there just throwing hard all the time and fighting like he's never at all even considered the possibility of losing. And it'll be interesting to see if... The title changes that aspect of his approach, as we've seen happen with some other fighters. Once you have that title, you have something to lose. You, Especially if you can play it smart and win safe, a lot of people opt to do that just because financial reasons in the sport make that the smart thing to do. But he's out there just kind of doing stuff, man. Like, you know, jumping onto that leg lock uh, as Alex Perez is looking for a takedown. He snatching up that guillotine in the transition and just throwing hard just throwing them hammers which i think is if you're if you're trying to create a blueprint for how to get people interested in 125 pounds again having a champ like that will do some of that for you plus also you can look down the road a little bit now and say all right there's some there's some stuff for him to do because you got the Brandon Moreno fight uh already booked it seems like we suspiciously right around the time that we found out that Peter Yan and uh, Aljamain Sterling weren't going to do it. We find out that we're going to go ahead and book the next title fight three weeks from now uh, for Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. But then you also got Cody Garbrandt waiting in the wings if he can get over the COVID stuff. And so it's like you can you can look ahead and be like, there is an interesting narrative here to play out. And that to me seems like the best hope we've had in a long time to get people kind of invested in men's flyweight in the UFC. Yeah, Davison Figueredo is a big guy at that weight. He hits hard, and he sure fights like it. He fights like he is committed to being the bully in the cage. He's going to go out there and uh, impose his will on you. And we saw some of that 
against Alex Perez this weekend, although we didn't get to see a ton of, of action, didn't get to see a ton of what we have, what the either guy had to offer, but like that exchange on the ground where Figueredo catches the guillotine. And if you're going to catch one, you want to do it in the first two minutes uh, because that's when everybody is dry and you can really, you know, bite down on that neck easier than you could maybe, you know, 10, 15 minutes into the fight. But uh, impressive, impressive display from Figueredo, obviously extremely lethal on the ground to go along with the power that he has on the feet. Uh, He certainly looks big enough to compete at 135 pounds. And frankly, if you're taking over this flyweight division, um, you know, a, a good way to get your name out there. If you're Davis and Figueredo is probably to turn around and come back at UFC 256 and fight uh, Moreno right away, because we've talked a little bit about Davis and Figueredo and the, the, uh, the ongoing plight of the flyweight division, I guess, in that, you know, we, we, we had a couple of really talented champions, in Demetrius Johnson and, and later Henry Zahudo, But for whatever reason, it just seems like fans in large numbers have not bought into the 125-pound men's division. And Davis and Figueredo has a little bit of an uphill battle trying to be a known guy, a guy that we're all going to recognize. He could probably do a lot worse than make the fastest turnaround in UFC championship history and come out and fight Brandon Moreno at UFC 256, assuming that he wins. But uh, are you content to watch this guy at 125 pounds or would you like to see what he can do at 135? Because like I said, physically, he would appear to have, you know, the frame and the skills that it would take to be competitive at the higher weight. Let me begin by responding to any more champ champ talk with this. (sighs) That's a heavy sigh. Yep. That's a deep and heavy sigh for all those listening. I I just see on the live stream over on the Patreon. I can see the the world weary expression on your face, and now you're doing that thing with your hands to denote the seriousness of the situation. So we can all tell where you're coming from here. I understand it. I know why we our minds just always turn in this direction, especially in this circumstance. Like you said, he's a big guy for the division, has had trouble making the weight in the past. So I get it. I understand we've kind of been programmed that once we get uh, an exciting champ, we immediately start thinking champ champ status. And yet it like, how often does it go well? Uh, and especially when here we are with the flyweight situation, the division feels like it's been just dragged back from the, the edge of the grave. And we have some signs of life in it now. And you want to talk about just having the guy go up and fight bantamweights and forget about the flyweight division. Like that just seems like, you finally have a potential answer for the problem that is the flyweight division. And then the next jump we want to make is one that basically turns our backs on the flyweight division again. And I get, I mean, I, I, I like, I can't say I wouldn't be interested in seeing him against some of these guys, especially what we've seen. If he goes through Brandon Moreno, if he goes through Cody Garbs, stuff like that. Then yeah, I think it's only going to get more enticing to think about Figgy Smalls up there against some of these 135 pounders. But there's time. There's time enough for that if we get there. Let's enjoy this for at least you know a few more months. Yeah, in a vacuum, as you said, it sounds cool to see Davis and Figueredo go up to 135 and, and fight fight them hitters up there. Uh, but at the same time, like at this point, I think we can all look at at history and acknowledge that at least in the UFC and in the men's divisions, there's just not a lot of uh, utility. There's not a lot of future in being the champ champ. It's like a cool thing to put on your resume. You get to take the picture in the octagon where you got the two belts, but unless you're Amanda Nunes or you're in Bellator or 
ain't shit going on for them to do with those two belts, the UFC just probably isn't going to let you have them. You you know, you, the, the, the schedule probably makes it uh, impossible to have one guy holding two belts because you just got, unless you're going to fight every three weeks like Davison Figueredo is, but I doubt he keeps that schedule up for too long. They need those, those titles to be operative. They need those titles to be in business so they can put gold on the poster when they have these pay-per-views every month. So like, it's a cool accolade. It's a cool thing to accomplish. Although I, there's probably some diminishing returns as we get more and more champ champs on the books. Uh, but they're not going to let you keep both those titles. Yeah. So it just forces a guy to make a decision one way or the other, which title he's going to fight, which title he's going to fight for and defend. And as we saw with Henry Cejudo, probably going to pick the bantamweight one. So it's kind of a dead end for flyweight, if you ask me. Yeah. Next question this week uh, comes from Adam Q, who writes, how fucking likable is Brandon Moreno? And can we please see him fight Figgy Smalls? I think if Moreno became the champ, he has the speaking skills, fighting style, and overall personality to be a huge draw in North and South America and possibly beyond. Uh, Brandon Moreno won the battle of the two Brandons. He is the uh, the ultimate Brandon from <laughs> this event over the weekend. Ben beat Brandon Royval. Uh, TKO right before the end of the first round, a, a weird situation. Uh, where Brandon Royval basically dislocated his shoulder, uh, which is, for whatever reason, an injury that I associate as something that happens to my dad's friends. Because uh, really? as a kid, yeah, as a kid, I remember my dad's pals would always be out like playing football in the yard or roughhousing, and it seemed like somebody would always get their shoulder dislocated. In fact, more than one friend I, this happened to. I remember more than one occasion where someone popped another guy's shoulder back in uh-huh. in the backyard of the house. Uh, but apparently, it happens to MMA fighters too. And we got to see the uh, the the replay here that looked kind of nasty with the shoulder hanging hanging limp at the side uh, in what was a kind of an awkward exchange as it happened live on the on the camera. But nonetheless, Brandon Moreno, he win he's the he's the BMFB. He's the bad okay. yeah. baddest uh-huh. motherfucking Brandon. Yeah, headed got out it. of this this event. Yeah, I I mean he is a likable guy and. Uh, I'm excited to see him turn right around and fight. I mean, this is a, such a quick turnaround for a title fight, but you know, both guys seem like they got out of there with minimal damage. And if they don't mind getting right back into training camp, one thing that is weird is to hear Dana White talk about it as saying like, I'm not letting Figueredo go back to Brazil. Like I'm not letting him leave the country. And you're like, I hope we're just having fun with language here. And uh, you mean like I'm talking this guy into it because right. say like I'm like I've snatched up the passport of this independent contractor and I'm making him turn right around and defend his title again three weeks from now is a little bit you weird. Hope, you hope that they mean that they're going to make it financially worth his while, not that they're going to call Homeland Security. Yes. Keep him uh, in a room. Yeah. The man, the the shoulder thing, the thing about the the replay where Mark Montoya pops his shoulder back in for him and then makes like direct eye contact with the camera that is watching them as he does that. There's something about it that I find unsettling and yet impossible to look away from because I keep seeing it come up across the timeline on Twitter. And every time I see it, I go, Oh no, you know what's going to happen and you know, you're going to feel weirded out by it. And yet I keep watching it. See, that's your that's your snapshot into the life of an MMA coach right there. Yeah, that's- see, this I was writing about this uh, after the event and how think of all the different things you're expected to have at least a working knowledge of right. as an <laughs> MMA coach. Montoya probably snaps enough guys' shoulders back into joint that he doesn't even mention it when he goes home, right? Yeah. Like his wife will be, how was, how was the day over at Factory X? He'll be like, oh, it's fine, you know? 
Normal day. Yeah, normal day. Give a couple of details, but maybe the popping popping Brandon Royval's shoulder back in doesn't even make the cut. Yeah, I popped a shoulder back in, set a broken nose, uh, acted as sort of amateur psychiatrist uh, and financial told, planner. Told a guy and, about mutual funds. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Just you, you better have a kind of a well versed knowledge base if you're going to be an MMA coach. Stuff like this proves it. Went online, tried to find find Maurice Green a new station wagon, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> MMA coach stuff. It's like, hey uh, man, I know this one looks good, but it's got two hundred and fifty thousand miles. Maurice, come on. Have you heard of Carvana? Uh, next question this week comes to us from Dallas Dharma. So uh, I'm just going to guess independent professional wrestler. Dallas, okay, Dallas I'm going to look Dharma. this one up while you read the question. Guys, did Jennifer Maya actually do anything noteworthy or was this just the UFC broadcast team desperately trying to keep us interested in another Valentina Shevchenko walkthrough uh, discourse? You know, far and away this week, Ben, the most emails that we got, the highest number of emails we got on any one subject was the return of Joe Rogan because we had not seen Joe in the broadcast booth for a while. He comes back for this numbered UFC event. I think we got a question coming up uh, a little bit later about Rogan in this show. But if you're going to lodge a criticism against Joe Rogan, one of the things that he does, and this is, he's certainly not the only one who does this. You could say that it is uh, a feature or a bug of the UFC broadcast team in general and has been for a long time. They will pick a storyline and they will ride it. They will ride that storyline like a bucking bronco, uh, regardless of whether or not to the naked eye, it appears that that thing is actually happening. And perhaps in this fight, it was that Jennifer Meyer was doing a noteworthy job of competing with Valentina Shevchenko. She did take a round off her. Uh, I believe it was the second round. You know, much of the round spent pushed up against the fence. Jennifer Meyer, obviously a powerful individual. Uh, but for the most part, I'm not sure that I saw it in terms of like a more competitive than normal Valentina Shevchenko fight, perhaps only competitive, more competitive than we expected because she came in as the plus 2000 favorite or whatever it was. Yeah. But to me, I don't know, man, it seemed like a 25 minute Valentina Shevchenko fight with a few minutes that were uh, only slightly more competitive than normal. Yeah. Especially down the stretch when it became clear that Valentina Shevchenko was sort of pulling away in this one. You'd see a lot of exchanges where Valentina Shevchenko absolutely laces Maya with a hard left hand. And then Maya will follow with a, a right hand counter that sort of catches her on the way out. But after she's been blasted in the face and doesn't land anywhere near as clean or as hard as Shevchenko did. And the commentators would seem to only mention that. Like only mention what Jennifer Maya was doing as if to, to try to get you to buy into the idea that she's still very much in this fight. And that it is not Valentina Shevchenko just cruising. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely noticed that one. I think some of it is like some of our reaction to this is a commentary on how dominant we are already used to Shevchenko being as the champion in that weight class. That if somebody wins a round off of her, it's a big deal, especially coming in as such a huge favorite and somebody even making it the distance, winning as many as one rounds is surprising to us. Even though that one round was basically just like a bad takedown attempt from Valentina. She ends up on bottom and stays there for a little while. And it wasn't like anything super scary or, or questionable happened for tour there. And I guess I like it happens with all dominant champions to some extent, right? Like we've definitely talked about it with John Jones where 
you expect him to be so much better than some of these people when he comes out there. And if they're just hanging in, if they're not getting obliterated, there's a tendency to think, oh, shit, they they may have won that round just because of how we expected it to go before it even started. I think there's some of that happening with, with Valentina. But I mean, it, it was a little bit of a frustrating fight to watch just because you you see Valentina lighten up Jennifer Maya whenever she throws. She's still, she's not the most active in terms of initiating these exchanges. And yet when she does, she seems really successful. She's landing, she's scoring, she's hitting her hard. And then she'll keep going for the takedown. And then just like late, she'll go for a takedown, land inside control, then move back to half guard in order to keep her pinned down. And like doing kias as she's throwing these short shoulder strikes and whatnot. And you're going, I don't understand. I don't understand the thinking here. You're winning it pretty clearly when you're on the feet. Why take her down and just kind of hold her there? And because she's one of those fighters where kind of the similar thing to when Tyron Woodley was holding it down as champion in his prime, where you go, man, when you really want to turn it on, you really seem like you're really, really good. And at times a lot better than the people you're facing. And so then it just gets frustrating that you don't seem to want to turn it on as much as we'd like. Yeah. You know, for a long time, it seemed like the UFC was really into Valentina Shevchenko. Like they wanted to make her into a person they could promote. I don't know if they had eyes on the long rumored UFC event in Moscow or Russia somewhere, kind of trying to prop her up as a as a star in the former uh, Eastern Bloc. Now you've got this UFC 255 card where this is her fourth consecutive successful title defense. It's the co-main to a, a relatively low wattage men's flyweight title fight as we discussed last week this is probably going to be one of the lowest selling ufc pay-per-views of the year stay tuned for ufc 256 where we'll have to see what the davy figs turnaround does for the buy rate but what do we think of valentina shevchenko just as a figure in the ufc as a personality in the ufc right now it seems like the company had high hopes for her i don't know if those things have been put on hold just because of the pandemic because we can only basically go to las vegas or abu dhabi but we're already running out of title fights for Valentina Shevchenko. No one has yet called for the demise of the women's flyweight division, as they so often do for the men. But uh, it seems like we're, we're looking around for, for challengers. I hope that they let her fight Lauren Murphy uh, while Lauren Murphy is still in, in her prime. But at the same time, like, it seems like we, we, we had the Valentina Shevchenko rocket on the launch pad and we were ready to fire it into the stratosphere as a potential UFC star. And I don't know that that has materialized. Well, she does need some opponents to help her out there, right? Like you need, you need a good foil. You can't get, and having Jennifer Maya come in where people are going, a, who is Jennifer Maya and B she's a 10 to one underdog. What, you know, what even is this? That doesn't really help you. It makes it really tough. Like, it creates a situation where there's so few ways for it to still seem really impressive when Valentina Shevchenko beats her and a lot of ways to seem less impressive, even if you win. And I, I always feel a little bit bad sitting here after a fight like that going, okay, yeah, you absolutely dominated this fight, only lost one round, and yet we wanted more out of you. Because if you're the champion, as we've said, the, the money is all in stand champion. The, the to the extent that Valentina Shevchenko is going to make any sort of like big money in MMA, it's going to be as champion. And she needs so you, we want to keep the belt. If you have to fight a little smart, a little safe, if it's not maybe as exciting as it could be, still financially for you, it makes the most sense. 
I mean, I would think the UFC's opinion on Valentina Shevchenko now, to the extent that it thinks about her very much at all, is she's really good. She's pretty dependable. She doesn't seem to make a lot of waves and cause trouble about picking opponents or wanting to be paid more or she doesn't cause you any of those kind of headaches. And so you can kind of just set it and forget it when it comes to Valentina Shevchenko. And I think that that's kind of the UFC mindset now. Like, hey, you're, you're making that guaranteed ESPN money. You can say you put a title fight on there. You can say you put two title fights on there. Nobody can tell you that it wasn't a pay-per-view worthy card. And then just let Valentina go do her thing. Next question this week comes to us from RAR, who writes, Whoa, dudes, there was a numbered UFC uh, event last night. I guess since we didn't do a watch party, meaning over on the Patreon, I didn't even realize this wasn't some throwaway fight night and this was a two-title affair. Over the last couple years, especially with Uncle Dana cozying up to Trump, I've been less and less interested in this thing. I used to go eat shit in the wild over. When I do watch, the bell-to-bell action is better than it has ever been, with more skill, drama, and violent physical poetry than ever. But there are so many noxious components outside the cage. Is this cyclical? Will I be back? Or am I just going to tune in every couple months via Zoom? Uh, To me, Ben, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the UFC product once the pandemic is over. Because I feel like we're in this pandemic MMA era where not every fighter is available. We have what seems like a fairly limited cast of revolving components, opponents to put in the cage and have fight each other. And that the UFC is, is uh, in this mode where it wants to try to make money without spending money. And once the pandemic knock on wood comes to an end, I am interested to see how many of those lessons that it learned during the pandemic carry over to the normal product, or if we get back, if everyone is just so goddamn overjoyed to be back to normal life and the UFC wants to pack stadiums and have a big events and et cetera, et cetera, or if we get back to some semblance of normal normalcy in terms of just like UFC matchmaking in terms of what we expect from the product, or if there might even be a half step return to the olden times when the object was to go out and make the best fight card possible in order to draw the most eyeballs. Uh, I am Hopeful for the middle option. I am. Wait, which uh, one is the middle? That we just get back to some normal matchmaking. Okay. Uh, I am slightly hopeful that they will try to blow it out a few times a year with a big event to draw a big crowd and make that gate money. But I am also a little bit fearful that the UFC will have taken this pandemic and realized we can put anything out there and still get our money from ESPN and enough people will watch that we can kind of have a sustaining business here. Yeah. I mean, it d- does seem to be the lesson that the UFC has already learned, right? Like I don't, I don't see it unlearning that lesson as long as ESPN is happy with it. The, it's tough to predict in a lot of ways what anything is going to be like six to nine months from now. Right. Cause for one thing, Hey, maybe this whole pandemic thing ends and you know, Chad, I'm going to be in the club, open mouth, kissing strangers. Uh, left and right concerts pool parties all kinds of cool stuff in the words of dana white i'm 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 gonna be at the foam party at the nightclub maybe people are less inclined to stay home on saturday night and watch a ufc every goddamn weekend but i don't know for one thing i want to shout out rar for the line about violent violent physical poetry because that's nice and i agree that when you watch the fights you do come away going 
the athletes involved in MMA and the kind of things that they're able to do. And just like the level of MMA you see in any given fight on prelims or whatever is so much higher than it was like eight to 10 years ago. Right. And yet the, it does feel more now like just sort of business as usual. And it feels like the UFC has settled into that in part because they're probably feeling like, Hey, we're really profitable as just a company that just churns out this MMA content. And the game is no longer to try to hype these cards and give you a reason each time to buy the pay-per-view there. Now the, the game is putting on the pay-per-view at all, getting that money from ESPN. And if it happens to be a really good one and you make some money on top of that, even better, but it's not the kind of thing that you live and die by. And I, I mean, you see what the lineup looks like for early 2021. And it seems like, okay, there's some, some light at the end of the tunnel here because kind of toward the end of this year, you see some of these events and you're going, man, these, some of these feel like a little bit of a slog or just like a yeah. completely throwaway interchangeable event. We're running there's, on empty. A yeah. Bit here. And, but there seemed to be some hope in the first early months of 2021 that we're going to see some big events again. And so I, I am hopeful that the UFC sees that it's worth its while to do that because uh, like this one, I can understand how you'd be like, whoa, there was a numbered UFC pay-per-view last night. Cause it didn't even feel like the UFC was pushing it that hard. Like we are all the way in this damn bubble. We are as deep in it as you can get. And it still didn't feel like anybody was really pushing on us. The idea that, Hey, there's a UFC pay-per-view that you've just got to watch on Saturday night. And then when you get there, you say like, it's a main evented by guys who have mostly fought on UFC prelims, like on the fight pass and ESPN plus and like things that you would be forgiven for not have seen before. And it's, it makes you wonder, like, is there a thought process here about like, how do we sell these people who we've kind of not put any sort of spotlight on? Or is the thinking just like, Hey, we got a deal that pays us whether you watch it or not. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to skip down a little bit here on our list and ask this question from Jay Seinfeld, uh, because it, it, not that we want to get off on a huge tangent here, but he, he writes, when you watch a fight like Kose versus Palatnikov, I guess it's Kose, right? Kose versus Palatnikov, uh, at the bottom of a preliminary card, how does it affect your view of present day UFC events? Even if a card looks thin and is peppered with fighters making their debuts on short notice, we can still have some ridiculous matchups throughout the night. Would you rather watch a boring fight that has top five implications or a back and forth war that will probably never impact the top of the div- of the division? Thoughts and discourse, please. Of course, he is referring to Sasha Palatnikov versus Louis Kosi, uh, which was the the first fight on the entire card on the on the early prelims on ESPN2, ESPN Plus, and Fight Pass. Uh, Palatnikov won it via third-round TKO. Those guys ended up winning fight of the night, which is kind of rare. Yeah. Uh, they, what are they the odds of have, that? That almost never happens. They did have uh, kind of an amazing scrap with spinning back kicks and spinning back fists, and both guys got rocked. And then, obviously, Palatnikov wins in the in the final round there via TKO, uh, and that, in a way, like I, this is a good question from Jay Seinfeld, mm-hmm. uh, th- that like kind of encapsulates the way the UFC product is right now, and that is that you, you the product in the cage, as we said, is very compelling, and on every event you probably are going to get some some slugfests like this one that we got. The downside being that it might be to be between two people you've never heard of before, and they are both okay. Both of those things are okay. Uh, either having like a, a top 
five fight with title implications or having like a, a wild slugfest between two guys you have never heard of. I think most MMA fans would agree. Both of those things are okay with us. The thing with me is that the way that the UFC made its bones as the top promotion in the world is that it has the best fighters and that for a long time it would put on fights, super cards, really. If you look at some of the the older ones from top to bottom where you would know every fighter and you would know how the win or the loss impacted the title picture at those weight classes. That's kind of what the UFC's calling card was for a lot of years. Now that you get these fights that might be, you know, wild, fun to watch slugfests, but between two randos, like that's a whole different kind of product. And the fact is any independent MMA organization can give you that. Bellator can give you a wild slugfest between two people you've never heard of. LFA can give you a wild slugfest between two people you've never heard of. As we say a lot, uh, the Russian MMA events that seem to be going on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year on my Twitter timeline can give you a wild brawl between two people you've never heard of before. So if the question is, which one do I want? From the UFC, I would honestly take a boring fight with top five implications over a brawl between two people I've never heard of before. Because that's the product that we all fell in love with. This other thing, which in some ways I agree is is a throwback to the very, very early pioneer days of the UFC where you would take two guys you'd never heard of, wind them up and set them loose in the cage and you would see what happens. But then we grew beyond that. And then were, there were narratives and storylines and title pictures and things to keep our interest. So I'm a pretty big mark for the former. Uh, and the demise of that and the reliance now on people that we have never heard of before, but who are, are going to give us a pleasing matchup of styles. It's fine, but it's not great. At least for me, the thing is, how do you expect me to view it? Like, how do you, how, what do you think that my viewing experience is going to be like? Because for a fight night like this, where it's a pay-per-view, it's not a huge one. If it wasn't my job, I probably wouldn't buy it. I'd probably wait and try to watch highlights on Twitter or other means, you know? And I have no idea what you're talking about right now. I'll tell you, I'll tell you later when we're off air. Okay. I'll explain what I mean by that. But it's like this, you know, it starts 4 p.m. or something on Saturday afternoon where you start ramping up with these fights. And I'm running around trying to get dinner and some kids trying to keep them from murdering each other after they've been isolated together for two weeks. And so it's like, I might have it on, on the laptop, like sitting over here while they watch fantastic Mr. Fox on the TV. And, you know, I'll, I'll glance over. I got to keep the sound down. Cause if I let the sound get up too loud, they're going to glare at me. And, but it's like, these are prelims. You've already kind of set it up as though these are not the, the main course. They're not really what I'm supposed to be coming for. I haven't heard of a lot of these people sometimes. And, it's kind of like if it's a good fight that's worth going back to watch and really focus on later, I'll hear about it. Yeah. I'll find out. And then I'll just, I'll go back to ESPN plus on Sunday morning with my coffee and sit there and watch those fights over, which is how I watch this one. And it's just like a different viewing experience than it used to be. I don't necessarily know if that's bad. And I think the USC's take on some of this stuff is look, especially when you have Dana White's contender series as like a pipeline, where you can try out people, maybe get them a little bit of momentum among the hardcores who are watching every contender series event every Tuesday afternoon. And, but also they all come in pretty cheap. 
because they're just happy to have the job. They're happy to have the contract at all. And they like the, like the Fertitas or whoever, if it was the Fertitas or Dana White who referred to, and then later claimed they did not refer to Conor McGregor as a penny stock uh, that paid off. That's kind of how I think they look at a lot of these people is they're penny stocks. They come in cheap. Uh, you don't expect a whole lot of out of them other than content and somebody to fill that spot on the fight card. And if they do give you a great fight, they give you uh, like a Joaquin Buckley highlight real KO that you can really capitalize on. Great. But you're also, you're just, you're spreading that out. You're spreading that risk out enough that you, you don't need them all to pay off and you don't need us all to pay attention to all of it. The, the thing is, you're just, you're just creating that mountain of content. Yeah. And as a viewer, I think one of the primary differences is that Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, I've got to watch live. Yeah. John Jones versus Daniel Cormier. I got to watch live, right? Israel Adesanya against Snacks Costa. I got to watch live. I mean, yeah, you got to be enjoying the experience with all the people. You got to be in the moment and the zeitgeist in the grand scheme of things. Sergey Palatnikov versus Louis Kose. I can catch up with that on Monday morning. Yeah. And I think that that is a slippery slope for the UFC. Because if you got a whole card of Sergey Palatnikov versus Louis Kose, uh, Suddenly, nobody's watching that anymore. Suddenly, we're, we're all catching up with it on Monday, wherever we may find it. And so, I think that's something they need to be mindful of. Next question this week comes to us from Hula Hawthorne, another independent professional wrestler, I assume, who writes, simple question, is Mike Perry still worth our time? Uh, so, Mike Perry goes out this week, Ben, misses weight by half a weight class, just about weighted at 175.5 loses the unanimous decision to Tim Means uh, in a fight where Means really just kind of picked him apart over the course of 15 minutes. This is a uh, this is the uh, uh, the pertinent question, I would say, at this juncture for Mike Perry, who I believe now is 7-7 seven and seven in the octagon. Uh, Mike Perry at one time was an interesting personality, at times entertaining, at times uh, offensive but he was always a fun guy to watch in the cage and came along at a time where we would take it, man. We would take anything that kind of gra- would gravitate, would grab our attention in this sport. Now, of course, a lot of stuff has come out in the press about Mike Perry, uh, his alleged domestic abuse, uh, is fighting older gentlemen outside a restaurant. He's at this point, not even really bringing a corner to his, to his fights. Uh, and when you watch him against Tim Means on Saturday, there was some exciting moments. But to me, he really just kind of looked like an ordinary fighter. Like he looked like a, uh, like he looked kind of like a guy who should be fighting a lightweight, frankly, even though he missed the welterweight limit. I mean, without the without the musculature, Mike Perry kind of has a frame that would be better for 155. Tim Means was towering over him, beating him with his reach every every second. I don't know, man. I look at this. I kind of watched this fight with a feeling that Mike Perry was over in some way. And I don't, you know, obviously we'll see if he keeps being a, uh, an entity inside the UFC, but like this is as uninteresting as he has been in his entire octagon career for my money. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of jarring to me a little bit of the cognitive dissonance that I was facing as I was watching this fight, listening to the commentary on him, because we're not going to mention any of the stuff that's been going on in Mike Perry's life. Everything right? that's been going on, trademark. There's the closest we get is 
I think Anik quoting Tim Means as saying that Mike Perry has a lot of distractions going on and he doesn't. And that's like, as we're, as the guys are walking into the, the cage, we, we hear something along those lines, basically like Tim Means thinking that he has the edge because Mike Perry has all these distractions and he doesn't. They're not, we're not going to name any of the distractions. We're not going to say the distractions include being very credibly accused of domestic violence by his ex-wife uh, and like videos showing him drunk out at a at a bar beaten up like an old guy which then leads the ufc to make a big announcement that he's going to seek treatment for substance abuse and won't fight until he gets that sorted out and then a few weeks later lo and behold he's on fight card and we're not going to talk about any of that kind of stuff they don't want to get anywhere near it they just keep trying to ignore that any of it is actually happening but they're also still trying to do the thing of like hey this, this mike perry is a wild and crazy guy man isn't it fun and it's like, man, yeah, that it used to be. It used to be until we all saw what was really going on here. And then we all felt, or at least most of us, I guess, felt kind of gross and complicit about the role we had played in being like, isn't this guy a fun walking train wreck? And then you see like, okay, yeah, no, the, it's not so fun. Like there are real world consequences uh, to Mike Perry walking around doing Mike Perry stuff all the time. And so to hear, like, to have the commentary keep trying to sell it as like, oh, this guy, you never know what you're going to get with this guy. And the the people who know sitting there at home being like, you mean like, I never know if he might just assault somebody or beat up a domestic partner. Like, that's not fun. That That is a problem. And to continue to kind of pitch it to us as like zany Mike Perry he's out there who knows who knows what he's gonna do next and like that that doesn't work for me man like it's that's a weird disconnect to be having as a view and it's like you can't make the argument like oh only hardcore fans even know about that so it's fine because only hardcore fans are watching this event yeah it's not like people packing into buffalo wild wings to watch this shit so i don't know it We've been accused before on this podcast, and maybe rightly so, that we were way too into the whole thing that Mike Perry was doing. But now, when you see like kind of the full scope of it, I don't see how you can just feel like, oh, it's just like he's he's a messy brand of fun, because it's not really like that anymore. And as you said, like it's not even justified by what he's bringing to like, in the cage action. Yeah. Uh, next question. This week comes to us from Lewis Blart. Who writes, guys, either of you ever see anything like AJ McKee's neck crank submission on Darian Caldwell in Bellator on Thursday? That was a new one on me. We obviously talked about this a little bit on Friday during the power hour, but worthwhile to revisit it here on the on the proper for just a couple minutes. This was a crazy one. AJ McKee advances to the finals of the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix, which as we've said a couple times uh, in the last several weeks, has kind of been remarkable that uh, Bellator seems poised to pull off this 145-pound 16-man tournament uh, without any substitutions and on a, on a relatively contained timeline. And if they get A.J. McKee in there in the finals against uh, Pitbull, who is the champion and who has been defending his title all along the way, that will be as epic and, and good as a, a final as you could imagine. And I hope that people go out there and make time to watch it, if that indeed is, is what happens probably early, early next year, I would think. Um, and this, this, uh, submission was wild and I don't know. I, I don't think I had ever seen anything before 
like this. I didn't even know what was happening as I watched it live. I needed the reverse angle from the from the replay to show me exactly how much pain Darian Caldwell was in when he tapped out. But uh, if you were going to make a list of people who have been winners during the pandemic era of MMA, people who have uh, who will come out of this thing looking the best, you know, I think you got to put AJ McKee and probably Pitbull. Uh, on that list with guys like Joaquin Buckley and Tanner Bozer and, and Kevin Holland and, and everybody else who has made waves in the UFC. Like, despite the fact we don't talk about it that much, like Bellator has been doing some good stuff. And those two guys especially have really done a lot to make a name for themselves this year. Yeah. Yeah. And to answer Lewis Blart's question, I had never seen anything like that before. I know we've heard from other people who say like the 10th planet people say, oh yeah, we've been using that or catch wrestling people say like, yeah, we we're familiar with that one. I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of different submissions and variations, both on jujitsu mats and watching MMA over the years. And I've never seen that before. And the thing that gets me about it, as we talked about a little bit on the power hour was that when a guy starts going for a submission like that where you don't even know to be worried about it until suddenly you're in a lot of pain and it feels like he's going to sever your spine. That's got to be such a difficult thing to do because you know he didn't want to tap. Like You know Darian Caldwell was not really thinking anything worrisome was going on until suddenly he's stuck in it and is like, holy shit, what even is this? Like yeah. That's... That's the the cool thing about being able to pull off one of those things and to get it like in the first round in the, the Bellator Grand Prix. Uh, that's where I think you have to look at AJ McKee and be like, all right, we're not let's let's stop just like calling him a prospect or saying maybe he'll turn into something. He kind of is something right now. Yeah, I like the McKee lock as a uh, as a name for that move. Personally, it really rolls off the tongue. It is dependent on you being familiar with the key lock, though, as a term. Eh, which, which, if you're if you're familiar with the McKee lock, chances are you heard of the key lock as well. Okay, fair only hardcore are watching this shit, as okay. we just said. Uh, Sean, this message from Sean Schatzel, who writes: Dana is calling for Shogun Hua's retirement. Although he's obviously well past his prime, I don't think it's time to hang him up just yet. If Shogun sticks around, what next? In the UFC, maybe you can do a Tashira match to keep the old man slash top contender busy uh, while Mr. Polish Power himself strays from the 205 rankings for the hashtag money fight. Not because Shogun deserves to fight Glover, but for shits and giggles. Uh, but really, Bellator would seem appropriate. Rematches with Sonnen, Rampage, and or Machida in the year of our Lord 2021 sign me up. What say you? for Shogun's next step. I mean, I don't necessarily know if you can have him fight Glover Tashira with, no. uh, with Shogun Hua coming off a second round no. uh, TKO where he tapped a strikes to Paul Craig. That doesn't seem like something you would put the erstwhile number one contender in Glover Tashira in a fight like in a fight like that. But I also don't know if Shogun seems totally done. Like the way that Paul Craig was getting those double legs was uh, troubling. The ease with which he was getting those double legs was troubling. Uh, but Shogun looked like he could still scrap a little bit. And like, uh, if, if he is done in the UFC, I guess we would have to see if Bellator feels like it is still in the signing old UFC guys uh, business. Scotty Cook some, keeps saying he's not. There was some speculation around the Anderson Silva release that Bellator wouldn't be that interested in bringing him in. So if they're not interested in, in Silva... Got to think they probably wouldn't be interested in Shogun Hua either. Yeah. But, but I agree that it is tough. He did not look good in that fight, you know, and especially the longer it went, the worse he looked. But 
the fact is, this is Shogun Hua's first loss in a little over two years, right? Like since since he got knocked out by Anthony Smith in July 2018. After that, beat Tyson Pedro, draw with Paul Craig, a split decision over Roger Nog in a fight that was honestly better than we had any right to expect from either guy at that point, and then comes in here and loses to Paul Craig. Like, We've been through this before with Shogun where he starts to look really shop-worn and people are saying he's done. And then he'll pop back up and he'll it'll be winning split decisions over Corey Anderson. And you're kind of going, what the hell? Yeah. I don't, you know, so I don't know. It's weird to me to have Dana White keep sitting up there at the press conferences and being like, I hope this guy retires. I want him to retire. And... Do you go, all right, well then like release him from his contract if you want him to be done. That's that's what is in your purview as the promoter. If you think that the guy shouldn't be fighting anymore, then don't give him any more fights with you. But like let him go and let him figure out what he wants to do on his own. And Shogun just doesn't seem like one of those dudes who's gonna come to that conclusion easily that that yeah. he's done fighting. It seems like yeah. it's it's gonna be a long and maybe difficult decision. Unless you just want to keep him in a room with Davis and Figueredo. Maybe you lock both those guys in a room, Figueredo, so he doesn't leave before UFC 256, uh, Shogun, just so he doesn't fight again. Just lock him in a room. Yeah, I don't see any way for that to go wrong at all. Uh, James Muir essentially asks us the same question about Paul Craig. He says, being Scottish, I'd love to see the jocks doing well. I don't know if that's a, a Scottishism, the jocks, but uh, even when striking, Paul Craig gets the tap, the ultimate style of doing his thing, discourse. Uh, don't look now, folks, but if you... You know, aside from the split draw that he had with Shogun Hua back in November of 2019, Paul Craig has uh, three stoppages in a row, two performance of the night bonuses, albeit against Shogun Hua and uh, Vinicius Moreira and you go ahead and say this yeah, go on. Gulov. Uh-huh, nailed it. I'm sure I did. But uh, I don't know, man. Like Paul Craig doesn't look like he's going to vault into the championship picture anytime soon. But it seems like you got a lot of kind of mid-level light heavyweights running around right now. Maybe they can find something interesting for him to do on the heels of, of you know, three wins and four fights. Yeah, he's a fun guy to have around, though. You know, he's a likable guy. I mean, it's fun when he walks across the cage to try to stare down Shogun Hua. And Shogun Hua is just acting like he's looking in a shop window admiring the wares. Doesn't even notice Paul Craig lurking behind him. Bruce Buffer keeps trying to get in the way. He's like... Paul Craig's trying to look around Bruce Buffer to stare a hole through the back of Shogun Hua's head and Shogun doesn't even notice. Yeah, I mean, he's a affable, gregarious guy. You seem to like him. But again, it, like we've said for some time at light heavyweight, the drop off when you approach the deep end of the pool is pretty steep. You know, and it's still concentrated at that like one through five spots, basically, and not really much higher than that. And then you got a lot of guys like kind of in the Paul Craig sort of situation. But yeah, I mean, I don't think we're approaching the time where we need to talk about Paul Craig making a run at the title. But uh, whenever you tell me Paul Craig's on a card, I go like, okay, there's a guy I know and enjoy seeing fight. I'll watch that. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, next question comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, John Anik floated an interesting idea for managing scenarios where fighters miss weight. Should a fighter miss weight and win the fight, it would be ruled a no contest. 
If the fighter who made weight wins the contest, they would still get a win. Mike Perry gave up $27,000 for his missed weight and don't believe uh, the threat of getting a no contest would be an additional deterrent. However, it does address the advantage one may get from coming in heavy. Have you heard this already? And what are your thoughts over this? Uh, I did see Anik float this or somebody yeah. like retweeted somebody. I can't remember exactly how it went uh, on Twitter. This to me strikes me as one of those uh, ideas that sounds good on paper and might be less attractive once you put it into practice and have like two or three fights on a particular card that all might end up as no contests because then you might have people start to ask, what are we doing this for? Yeah. I also, I'm always suspicious of the thinking that says the thing we need to do in order to stop people from missing weight is just make the punishments worse and worse. Yeah. So I, I feel like there's there's not a lack of motivation or incentive to make weight right now. Giving up a big chunk of your money to the other guy, like that's that ought to be something. Plus the fact that even if you win, people are gonna kind of act like it didn't count because you missed weight. Like there's I think if we're just like, you know what? We think this guy could have cut the extra five pounds, but he just didn't want to bad enough. Like he could have maybe put himself in the hospital over those extra five pounds is what he probably and would have ended up doing. And we can't kind of simultaneously be like, we hate these extreme weight cuts and the unnecessary health risks they pose. But also we want to make the punishment for missing weight so dire that you will do anything to avoid it. Is, and I, I also think that just from like the, like you said, like from the fan perspective of being like, so we're watching a guy fight where his best case scenario is that he will just avoid a loss, but that's it. And that would be a weird thing. That'd be like a strange kind of stakes to have hovering over a fight, especially since kind of happens not infrequently. Yeah. I guess in a real big picture way, we as a sporting subculture might need to make a, a- – like a macro decision about which direction we want to trend as it pertains to weight cutting. Like if you want to become more officious and punitive to make sure that guys show up on the weight, or do you want to uh, totally re realign the thinking about how weight classes work and, and come to a decision where like maybe a guy doesn't need to kill himself to cut those extra three pounds, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure how either of those things work in practice, but it seems like there's, you know, we're, it seems like we are uh, rapidly approaching a philosophical fork in the road that we might have to make a decision of, like how seriously we want to take this weight class shit at some point. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Dale Jorgensen, who writes, it used to feel like Joe Rogan made a UFC event feel like a big deal. Now he honestly ruins it for me. Based on his commentary in the co-main event, you would have thought Maya was cruising to a 50-45 win. I could go on and on about how annoying Joe Rogan moments are, are, go on and on about annoying Joe Rogan moments on this card, but I'll leave it to you to further discourse your capital Joe Rogan experience. Thanks. Uh, You know, it had been a while since we saw Rogan on the card, and like I said, we got a lot of emails about that this week, and not very many of them were positive. It seemed like maybe having him away for a long time and then having him come back was somewhat jarring just uh, compared to what we normally get or what we have been getting recently from UFC broadcast teams. I didn't particularly find him all that annoying this time around. Although I think having him having this lengthy absence and then having him return really reinforces to you the stuff that Joe Rogan does 
on a broadcast and it's sort of starting to seem Goldberg-ish. And I don't mean that as a real dig at Rogan, but it just sort of seems like, you know, Joe Rogan is going to come in and do his Joe Rogan stuff on the, on the broadcast, on the broadcast. And maybe if you have been without that for a while, it is startling to, uh, to hear him do it. Yeah. I, there were moments listening to the commentary during this one where I felt like Joe Rogan gives less of a fuck now than he has ever given. Yeah, but I mean, could you blame him? Like, yeah, no. He's been out here making hundreds of millions of dollars, moving from California to Texas, doing his podcast, becoming a damn sponsor of the UFC uh, at a time when I think many of us grapple with the watchability of the product and all of the stuff that's happening around the sport. If you told me Joe Rogan wasn't paying as close attention now as he had for the previous couple decades that he's been involved with this sport, I would not be surprised to hear that. Let's just yeah. say that. No, neither would I. And and there have been times in the not too distant past where Joe Rogan giving very little of a fuck was kind of a good thing because it at least positioned him where he could sort of speak truth to power to the UFC. Because he didn't have to worry that he was going to say the wrong thing or say something that Dana White didn't like. And then the next thing you know, you never hear from Joe Rogan again. Like he's past that point. You can't do you can't really de-platform Joe Rogan at this point if you're the UFC. Even if you were to fire him as a commentator, you know, he has a bigger reach outside of it. So that's that's not a concern. He can say what he wants and he can not worry about how the brass views it, which should be a good thing for the fans and for like the viewers. But there are also times where the not giving a fuck kind of seems like maybe it carried over into the preparation he did for this event. Yeah. And yeah. and there's also I think like I really like the interaction and the chemistry between John Anik and Daniel Cormier. But then when you add Joe Rogan into the mix, it feels like Rogan and Cormier will just get rolling on something. And John Anik has to be the like librarian coming over to shush them and get them back on track a little yeah. bit. And that's maybe not the best dynamic these days. I, I, like, I don't feel like he, he ruins it anything for me to have Joe Rogan involved in the thing. But I also feel like just culturally... Joe Rogan reads as a like a thing now rather than just the person who shows up and does UFC commentary because he really genuinely loves this sport and is passionate about it. Like Joe Rogan has become like a weird sort of like cultural shorthand, you know, yeah. like he, he that's that's a different thing than it was five years ago having Joe Rogan around. And so, like, I don't know, I, I can understand how people will feel differently about his presence on some of those broadcasts than they used to. You tease this one at the top of the show. So I'm going to read it before we stray over an hour here from Susan B. Anthony. She nice. writes, I cop to turning off audio over the weekend because I have finally had it with the near universal MMA, MMA commentary fixation on betting lines and coaching through every goddamn position we're watching. I'm sure constant lazy remarks about live dogs would be interesting if I was a gambler, but I'm not. Maybe I'd find the howling about the potential for a twister endearing if I was a high school wrestler, but I'm not. Instead, I'm struck by the gulf between the between MMA and every other individual and team sport broadcast where the programming feels more about the wider audience rather than tailored to a small subset of fans. Tell me gambling and, fr and free advice on how to break a clinch off the cage if we happen to be in such a position in the streets are why most people watch this stuff. Is this really the best we can do? Um, this is an interesting point in criticism, and I don't know if it's necessarily one I've ever heard before, but it does strike me that there is more 
expository breakdown, I guess you would say, of what's happening in an MMA fight than perhaps in some of the better known sports like football and, and basketball, where maybe they don't get quite as deep into the weeds of the X's and O's all the time like we do in MMA. But I think it's pretty obvious where that comes from, right? Like for a long time, this was a sport where many of the people tuning in literally did need you to explain to them what was happening yeah, so that they would understand what they were watching. Uh, and maybe that has changed now. I don't know. Maybe we were far enough down the path that we don't necessarily need to do that. Uh, but I think this is an interesting point. Like maybe some people find it annoying. I have to say, I never really thought or noticed this before. And now that I have, it's, it's, uh, it's making me clue in a little bit more to a different aspect of commentary that maybe I hadn't paid any attention to. Well, while I respect Susan B. Anthony, I will point out that these are kind of two different criticisms because the, the betting odds thing. Okay. That I see that I, I get what you're saying there. And I have heard that complaint from other people, especially recently. John Anik seems like he really like that is just a genuine personal interest of his is sports gambling. And the UFC has kind of softened its stance. It seems about talking about the betting odds on the broadcast and especially seeing like the opportunity for partnerships. It seems like the nation in general has softened its stance on sports gambling and not seeing like as Vito Corleone would say, maybe seeing it as a harmless vice now and not something that we need to like, not even like sports broadcasts need to not even acknowledge that people might be betting on this stuff. Um, that I think some of that I think comes from John Anik being a guy in the seat who is genuinely interested in it, but also betting odds are just always going to be an easy thing to reach for when you're not sure what to say about a matchup is you can always just look up and see like, okay, who's the favorite, who's the underdog, what's the basis for that. It's something to talk about when there's not a lot else to talk about. And a lot of these fights we see sometimes, especially when you're talking about Valentina Shevchenko versus Jennifer Maya, something like that. It's like the most interesting thing about it is how lopsided odds makers expect it to be. And so I understand how that comes up, but I can also understand people who are like, look, I'm trying to watch a sport because I enjoy the sport. Like I don't care about betting on it. Like betting on it is a completely separate thing from just watching it and enjoying it. But I do feel like, especially when we're doing a good job of explaining the X's and the O's and the, the, the technique stuff, I think that does add to my enjoyment of seeing it. Like Daniel Cormier had a pretty good breakdown where he was shown the, talking about the this latest Joaquin Buckley knockout where he's pointing out like, okay, here's how he is using his striking to move the guy into his power hand essentially to set up the knockout. And you're like, okay, no, that, that that's a worthwhile thing to spend time on the broadcast doing. It's like slowing it down and showing you how it actually happened and why it happened this way. That I think is, is always going to be a worthwhile thing to do. And I mean, they do it in, in most other sports. It's just that, most other sports don't have the same barrier to entry because if you didn't grow up playing high school football, you grew up watching some football, you kind of have a basic idea of how this shit works and what the techniques involved are and everything. And you just don't need as much explained to you. But a lot of people might be fans of fighting who don't really know the, what makes a good double leg from a sloppy double leg, you know? Yeah. So I, I think yeah. that there's a place for that. The, Hard turn into gambling lines has been so pervasive, though, that it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we learn that someone is getting some money for that. Like the oh, UFC yeah. is. is uh, well, they've partnered before with uh, different. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So it's not that that wouldn't be at all unusual. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from the peculiar purple pie man from Porcupine Peak. 
Well, all right. I believe this this fellow wrote a tongue twister, uh, knowing that I would have to say it on the broadcast. I appreciate that. He writes, we all know that Kayla Harrison will be the highlight of the weekend's Invicta card, but can we take a few moments to be thankful that Invicta keeps rolling on? Shannon, TJ, Julie, and that new kid Laura keep uh, plowing forward, building up their promising WMMA roster despite cough, larger promotions stealing away their top talent. Clap, damn you. Uh, I don't know. I just, I look around the, uh, the, the landscape of the sport on Monday here, Ben, and I don't necessarily know enough people are talking about uh, the potential for Kayla Harrison. If indeed she can regularly and wants to regularly make 145 pounds, that seems like a pretty big happening in the sport because Kayla Harrison appears to be a person who might be a problem for just about everyone, including the women's featherweight champion in both of the major promotions though obviously that we would need to jump through some hoops to get her into either of those major promotions. But uh, when you're signed with PFL and you're fighting for Invicta, it doesn't seem like too big of a jump to make it over to the octagon yep. if uh, that's where you want to be. So Kayla Harrison at 145 pounds, man, is uh, a development, let's just say. Um, first of all, I want to say that the Purple Pie Man of Porcupine Peak was introduced in Strawberry Shortcake's first adventure, The World of Strawberry Shortcake, where he succeeded in flooding Strawberry Land and stealing all the berries in the valley. This, oh, of man. course, comes from strawberryshortcake.fandom.com slash wiki. So you are telling me that the peculiar Purple Pie Man from Porcupine Peak is a bit of a scoundrel. Yeah, well, if you can see the picture of him, the mustache on this guy alone will tell you that okay. he's a scoundrel. There's well, no doubt I about go, that. I got to go to Google here, so say some smart stuff about Kayla Harrison while I check out the peculiar purple pie man from Porcupine Peak. Yeah, I mean, I do think... Uh, it's- oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no way that that mustache is on a is on a good guy, let's just say. That's a villain right there. When we were talking earlier about it'll be interesting to see what we look like coming out the other side of the pandemic for the UFC. For me, one of the things that I've been thinking about and kind of worried about is what the more like what some of the smaller MMA organizations are going to look like to the extent that they exist at all on the other side of the pandemic. The UFC has the ability to survive this pretty much just fine. It's a lot of these other these smaller organizations, and Invicta is kind of on that list of how do you keep that stuff going through the pandemic and keep it making financial sense to keep going. And then a lot of the other like regional kind of feeder organizations, those are the ones where you like you you can it's fine to not think about those until they're gone, and then you're going to realize the ways that you depended on them and why they're important to have for kind of the MMA ecosystem. And but yeah the. For as far as Kayla Harrison, it is interesting. You throw her in there, you give her an Invicta fight. It does having her fight in Invicta does seem like edging, you know, just sort of tiptoeing closer to end up in the UFC. If you show you can make 145 and look good there, then it's the first indication that she might actually fight in a or be able to fight in a weight class that the UFC actually has. And then also you give her elbows to work with, and it turns out, yeah, she can do something with that. You know, going to walk out of there, uh, look just coated in another person's blood. She beat, who is it, Courtney King? Is that who she fought on on, on this Invicta card in the main event? She beat her so badly about the face, and there was so much blood that Kayla Harrison looked like she felt bad. Yeah, no, she made the the, I feel bad facial expression. 
Yeah, after the stoppage, she like turned around and walked across the cage and made the kind of wish I didn't have to do that face. Yeah, like so a, like a worried she was going to get in trouble kind of face. Oh, oh, and and uh, just to answer the peculiar purple pie man from Porcupine Peaks actual question, it seems like Shannon Knapp, TJ DeSantis, and uh, Julie Kedzie among the best people we have in the sport, like on a personal level. I obviously don't know Laura Sanko, but I've never heard anybody say anything bad about her. So like, it seems like uh, there's a lot of good people at work over in Invicta. And I do hope that they can keep on trucking because they, they fill a, a good niche in the sport. The Purple Pie Man, Chad, I don't know if you knew this, uh, would frequently refer to himself in the third person and always performed a quick jig after doing so. Okay. He, uh, he dislikes snakes and Sour Grapes is singing, but hates Strawberry Shortcake's berry talk, which is when she substitutes berry for any word that rhymes with that, above all else. Well, I know where I'm going on YouTube after we are done here. Mr. Sun yeah. describes him as a, quote, misanthropic fathead with a skinny physique. See how far down the uh, peculiar purple pie man from Porcupine Peak rabbit hole I can get this afternoon. All right, maybe this is the last question from Leon Samuel. Who writes, do you think this Tyson versus Jones fight is a quote unquote exhibition because these guys are too old for an athletic commission to sanction or because they are both TRT'd out their tits and they want to avoid the more stringent glare a regular fight would garner in relation to PEDs? Please contemplate. Cheers for the all too real. Cheers from the all too real land of Scotland. Uh, so it could then, be both. I guess that is what I would say to this. Yeah, we've learned some disquieting things yeah. uh, over the last week or so about the Roy Jones Jr. Mike Tyson exhibition boxing match. Not only that what you're looking at here is uh, two-minute rounds, eight two-minute rounds, is that what we're doing? Something like that. Not only that, but we also learned that there won't be any judges, scorecards, or a winner declared if this thing goes the distance. There had been some talk over on the Patreon page patreon.com slash co-main event that we would do a live watch party on Saturday for the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones, Jr. Boxing match. And at this point, I believe you and I have to ask the sobering question of whether or not it's really going to be worthwhile to do that. If indeed what we're going to have is two old guys going out to kind of duff around the ring for a few rounds with an unspoken gentleman's agreement to not punch each other too hard in the face. And then we would declare it a, uh, I don't even know if you would call it a draw. Maybe you would just say it was a thing that happened. Yeah. It was a, it was a worthwhile experience for all involved. And then we would all shake hands and agree to go our separate ways. Uh, the real Mike victory Tyson, is the friends we made along the way. Indeed. Indeed. If Mike Tyson's not going to be out there trying to knock somebody's head off, is it even worth it to watch a Mike Tyson fight? It's a good question. I think a lot of it depends on the why as to some of the decisions that we're making here. Because like Leon Samuel here asks, is it an exhibition because you don't want to have to ha sanction it through an athletic commission or because you want to be able to use performance enhancing drugs? I would just say I'm sure that both sides kind of felt like, you know what, for this, this specific thing that we're doing, the less oversight, the better. Like we don't, we just don't want anybody putting their nose too close to our business on this one because it's already, it's like from concept to execution, it is a shit show. And we all know that. And that is kind of what we're selling. 
And we just don't want anybody getting in the way with all their, their government regulations and whatnot. And if that's the thing, if really like if we're doing that in order so, so that we can just go out here and have ourselves a good time without the athletic commission getting in the way, then fine. I, I might actually want to see that. I mean, it's going to be stupid. We're going to feel bad about ourselves afterwards. We're going to realize that it was a mistake to ever go down this path. I, I can accept that. I can live with that. But if we are, if they are doing all these things because they've just decided, hey, you know what? We'll go out here and it'll be kind of like like when Evander Holyfield fought Mitt Romney. That's what we're doing here. Like kind of like charity boxing match, except the charity is us. Like if, if that's what we're doing, then I would say uh, maybe I could skip it and catch the highlights later on. But I don't know. I'd say we leave it up to the patrons of the co-main event podcast. Cause if they want to, if they want to sign up and take that ride, if they're, if they're going to commit to showing up and, and coming to the party on Saturday, then I'll go ahead and host the party for them to come to. I will, yeah, I will do I it mean, if they want to do it. That seems right. That seems like the most democratic way we could, we could solve this problem. If people are interested, we will do it uh, at patreon.com slash co-main event, where by the way, at any, at any point you could sign up to join the team and come over there and have the fun with us during the live chat and the power hour and the movie club and the occasional Saturday watch parties. Uh, I am just worried that we are going to get into a Jack Johnson versus Stanley Ketchell, uh, type situation without the double cross, (laughs) right? Like that we'll just be out there with an agreement that we're just going to patty cake around for a while and, and give the people a show. And that'll be that. But doesn't doesn't it seem like, especially with these two boxers in particular, the odds of the double cross are actually kind of high? Or the Maybe. odds that somebody hits somebody else a little too hard, and then the next thing you know, they're going, this motherfucker. Like, and we end up accidentally like working ourselves into a shoot. See, if we find out on Monday that Mike Tyson knocked Roy Jones Jr. out in the second round and he had to go to the hospital and they had to take his face off and put Nicolas Cage's <laughs> face on, then I'm going to be able feel upset that we missed it. Yeah. Man. But, but if it's going to be an eight round giant glove sparring session, then I don't know. Well, I just don't know. Well, the people will speak. We'll the put it up for a vote for on the Patreon, put it up for, we'll open up a poll and we'll see where we come down. How about that? Okay, that sounds good. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the show in future weeks, go over to the brand new website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Thanks to our guy, Chris McElwee, for helping us get that up and running and for continuing to troubleshoot the uh, the ins and outs of of the website, even, even now, even as we speak. Uh If you want to sign up to have some fun at the Patreon, as I said, just visit patreon.com slash co-main event. There are three easy tiers for you to sign up. Different levels of patronage, which will earn you different access to different content. It's all good. It's all just great content. It's just really, really good. Everyone loves it. Uh, So go over there and do that. If you got a mind to, maybe join us on Saturday if we end up doing the Mike Tyson, uh, Roy Jones Jr. Tickle Fest. And, uh, And a good time will be had by all. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I think, what if they have to put Roy Jones Jr. back together like RoboCop after this thing is over? If Mike Tyson kills Roy Jones Jr., I hope you feel really bad. (laughs) You think Tyson is listening to this right now, just getting mad? Just getting 
Remember that old interview where they talked about how bullies took Mike Tyson's glasses and shoved them in the gas tank of a car, and Mike Tyson just had no no words. He was like, "Why? Why? How would someone even do that? Why would someone do that? The man's inhumanity to man. He's that mad right now yeah. from listening to me talk about." Still, as he's getting mad, I hope he's still wearing the leather baseball cap that says Tyson Rules on it that he was wearing in that interview. I mean, you know, he's coming out to this thing with the black towel and the black trunks to fight Roy Jones Jr. And that's just going to get me hyped. And then if if he's if Tyson's out there throwing jabs, uh, I don't, I'm not sure what I'll what I'll think. Right? No. Just jab, jab, jab. Yeah, you want to see somebody seriously hurt in their golden years. I'm saying want. if Mike Tyson's not trying to do that, what's the point of watching Mike Tyson? Fair. That's fair. Then I guess we'll find out. The people will let us know. 